Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon. The scripture reading this week is from the book of Genesis. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw that the earth was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted its ways upon the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. Now I am going to destroy them along with the earth. Make yourself an ark of cypress wood, Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. For my part, I'm going to bring a flood of waters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you and of every living thing of all flesh you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you they shall be male and female and noah did all that the lord had commanded him the flood continued forty days on earth and the waters increased and bore up the ark and it rose high above the earth the waters swelled and increased greatly on the earth and the ark floated on the face of the waters. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and all the domestic animals that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, As for me, I am establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the domestic animal, and every animal of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between you and me and every living creature that is with you for all generations. I have set my bow in the clouds and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. 
please take a moment for silent reflection. Friends, let's pray together. Gracious God, as we listen to this scripture today, a scripture that most of us are familiar with, even if we're not church-going people or haven't read much of the Bible, most of us know a story of the judgment and the flood and Noah, a story that is both, both fascinating and terrifying, a story that perhaps arises as many questions as it does answers, but a story that ultimately gets at the central concern of each of our lives. Why is this world so broken? And what are you doing about it? Do you see our lives? Do you see this world? Do you care? As we consider our lives and our world today, in our news feed, we scroll through stories of abuse and abuse of power, of political betrayal and personal betrayal, of wars and warlords and trafficking. And as we look in the mirror at our own lives and say, I thought I'd be in a different place by this point. I'm tired of two steps forward and one step back. What is God doing with the mess of this world? And you come crashing through saying, I see it. I call it what it is. I'm doing something about it. Help us to see that today, however we find ourselves in your great story that you see us in all our complexity and contradiction and you move toward us in the person and work of your son Jesus Christ because it's part of your character. And so now we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit you would open our eyes to your grace and convince us of your great love for us. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, friends, this is a big week for the Nault family because Florence is out of town on a girls' weekend. She's having a blast. I always say if I step out, things slow down. If Florence leaves for a while, things come to a grinding halt in the Nault household. But I am proud to report the kids have made it to school this week. They have all eaten three meals a day at least. The house hasn't burned down yet. I mean, things are going really well here at the Nault house, so I'm pretty thrilled about that. One of the things that happens when you have an Enneagram 7 kind of thrill-seeker, fun-seeker type dad is that you're just kind of cr looking to cram every moment with a little bit more fun. So yesterday, Levi, our middle guy, was away with his buddy, and I had Benjamin and Joshua. And I said, hey, we have one hour. Let's go to the zoo. So we pull into the zoo, and we have our passes all ready. We go to the person receiving the passes. He says, I have good news and bad news. The good news is, Matt, your pass is still good for a couple months. The bad news is your kids' passes have expired. The good news is kids are free in October up till 12 years old. Benjamin immediately goes, well, I'm 13, so I'm out. And I said what you would have said, congratulations on your honesty, son. I'm so proud of you. No, I didn't. I like, Can't you be 12 for like a day, for an hour? So I say to the, to the ticket attendant, now look, here's the deal. I've got a pass. Joshua's fully, you know, ready to go in. Can you let my 13-year-old go in for one hour? That's all I'm asking, one hour. 
We want to see the reptile house and get an icy. And he goes, I'm so sorry, I can't do it. I looked at him and I said, you were 13 once. Imagine 13-year-old you standing here. What would you want the ticket person to say right now to that 13-year-old you? He goes, I'm really sorry, I can't do anything. And I, all right, I think I tried everything. So we're walking away, and I tried bribery to my kids. Kids, I'm sorry, we can't go to the zoo. I'll take you to a, another place, and we'll get you an icy, a slushy. Okay, fine. But before we do that, let's go to the membership office because I want to plead our case one more time. And maybe we'll get someone else who's a little nicer to give us this pass for this one hour. So we're in line for the membership office. And this man comes by with a gaggle of children. I mean, they could have filled Noah's Ark themselves. And he had just bought all of these tickets for all of his kids. He was in from out of town, not realizing kids were free in October. And so he was trying to get his money back. They wouldn't give his money back. So he had all these tickets, and he just said, would anybody like a ticket? And I said, sir, I'd love one of those tickets for my son. Can I give you something for it? He said, I'm just happy to give it to you. We went into the zoo. We got the icy. We went to the reptile house. That man did a good deed. Thank you, sir. Uh, zoo, you need to get your, uh, your customer service right. Okay, so we're inside, we're inside the zoo, and my kids go, well, now can we get the icy? Of course we can. So we get that. See the animals. We're all the way over at the elephants, and we're starting to walk back. And Joshua, our seven-year-old, comes on my arm and he says, Dad, I want you to walk me to the gate, but I'm going to close my eyes the whole way. So we're walking, and it's thick with people. It's Sunday afternoon in the San Diego Zoo. And I'm moving him back and forth, and we're navigating. And as his eyes are closed, and he's got this big smile on his face, he goes, Dad, I trust you. I trust you. It's gold. Get to the gate. We're heading to the car. I said, you can open your eyes now. He goes, okay, Dad. So we're going to get an icy now? You said we can go out and get an icy. I said, son, we got one inside the park. He goes, but you said we can have an icy outside the park too. You don't care about me. The reason I bring that up is because in that little comical moment, I think Joshua was giving us a beautiful, profound, honest picture of what it means to be a human being. Now, I do realize in this analogy, I get to play the role of God, so please forgive me on that. That's a little pompous. I understand. But God says, I have taken care of you. I have fed you. I mean, hopefully it's more nutritious than an icy. I have given you access. I have brought you in. I have led you in places that you cannot see. You can trust me. And then we don't get the one thing we wanted, and we say, I knew you didn't care about me. See, that's the interesting thing about reading the book of Genesis, is it goes all the way back. Genesis means beginnings. It is the book of beginnings. It is getting to the root causes and conditions of how we find ourselves in our current situation. When we put an addition on our home here in North Park, first we did an inspection of the foundation. That is revelatory, meaning expensive. But what they do even below the foundation is they say, let's go and look at the soil and see what's even below the foundation. Then you find out things like my part of North Park used to be an orchard, and so there's all sorts of roots and vines and all kinds of stuff that grows through the soil. But what are they doing? getting to root causes and conditions so you can understand how to build a structure really soundly. Genesis takes you and me back to the foundation of the world so we can understand how to build a life and a world more soundly. Now, we always have to have this caveat that the genre of Genesis has been debated over eras and eras and eras. And different theologians and scholars decide, uh, differ in their view on how to break up the book of Genesis, which is 50 chapters long, what part of it is history, 
What part of it is poetry? The poetry is pretty obvious just because of the way that it flows. What part of it is history and meant to be taken literally? What part of it is historiography in that it's not telling anything less than the truth, but it's doing it with the conventions of the people of the time and the way they spoke back then? So for example, will you meet someone named Adam and Eve when you go to heaven, or Adam meaning the Hebrew word for man and Eve the Hebrew word for woman? Is it more of a story of the first man and the first woman, right? So just know, the genre of Genesis is debated widely. My particular place where I come down is Genesis you know, 1 and 2 are really good poetry. That's pretty clear. Genesis 3 through 11 are probably historiography. I don't know um, if we'll meet someone named Noah. I don't know if there was an actual flood that was that big. I know now some of my friends will say, well, if there really was a flood, and really God judged everything, and two animals of all types were on the ark, how did God judge the dolphins? How did God judge the fish? How did God judge the sea life? Because, of course, they didn't go in the ark, and they did fine in the water. And it's not like we realize that now, and we go, aha, therefore we can't trust any of this stuff. And the old writers and the early audiences are going, gosh, I never thought about that before. You know, they saw it. The point is, Genesis is not trying to be a science textbook for you and me. The author of Genesis is not interested in telling you the how of the Big Bang that originated the whole universe. The, author of Gen the authors of Genesis are interested in telling you the why. Why were you created? Who created you? What have you been created for? What's gone wrong with this world? And what is that God doing about it? Those are the big questions that Genesis seeks to answer for you. And people get wrapped around the axle trying to figure out where was the person standing when they had the view of the very first day of creation. And it's just not a question that Genesis intends to answer for you. You'll be there for a long time waiting for an answer. But it does answer. And, and so here's an example of historiography, you know, being nothing less than true, but telling it in a way that is, uh, you know, kind of vast and vivid in its imagery. If my kid goes to school and says, you know, my dad is so strong he can lift a bus. On one hand, is he telling the truth? No, I can't lift a bus. But from his perspective with his language, what he's trying to say is my dad's really strong compared to me. So in that way, he's telling the truth, right? So it's the same thing, you know, as we go, a similar thing as we go through. But the big questions that Genesis is answering in this passage, does God see me? Does God care? Does God see the violence and the brokenness and the injustice in this world? And if so, what is God going to do about it? Friends, how you answer those questions will affect the way that you deal with adversity in your own life and how you approach the pain of this world. So in the time we have, let's consider the God who sees, the God who judges, yeah, I said it, the God who judges. I don't like that word either, but we're going to explore it, and there might be more than meets the eye for you there. The God who sees, the God who judges, and the God who saves. First, the God who sees. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw that the earth was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted its ways upon the earth. Years ago, Florence and I went to Rio de Janeiro. And while we were in that beautiful city, we had to see Christ the Redeemer, the iconic statue there on that tall mountain overlooking the entire city. From the ground and from far away, in many ways, it looks like a beautiful, warm embrace of a blessing. And I'm sure it was intended as such. But one of the striking factors that captivated me as we approached and got closer to that great statue 
was that the eyes are as concrete and cold as the body. In other words, you have a big image of Christ in blessing, but that Christ cannot see you. Maybe that's how God feels like to you these days. God, do you see me? Like, I know, maybe I know God in general cares about the world, but really, does God care about you in particular? Children, when they feel like they have been done wrong and injustice has occurred, when a toy has been stolen, what do they do? They come and they say, look, do you see what happened to me? God says, I see what's happened to you. I see it. This is not an image of a God who is the philosophical divine watchmaker who has tuned this universe so intricately with so much complexity and then lets it run its own course. In that image, you have a God who is powerful, brilliant, but uninvolved and distant. Instead, you have a God who is intimately involved in the work of God's creation. And even as that creation, even as those human beings who God has furnished and cared for and protected and walked with and proven God's self to be trustworthy, and we say, we still don't trust you. We're going our own way. And God's constantly trying to get back in front of you again and again. In fact, it goes further. God not only sees, God feels our pain. In verses 5 through 6 of chapter 6, they're not printed for us, but it says, when God saw the evil and brokenness of this world, God's heart was filled with pain. And that word pain is very specific. The type of pain that talks about the pain you feel in your heart when a best friend abandons you. When a spouse leaves another spouse, that kind of pain, that's the exact Hebrew word that it says God feels when God sees you and me walking away the damage we inflict on ourselves and on one another, the violence that we inflict individually, communally, societally, and globally. In other words, we already see in Genesis chapter 6, the very beginning of Scripture, we already see God suffering for the brokenness of this world. A God who sees. But f next you see a God who judges. Verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 13 says... And God said to Noah, I've determined to make an end to all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. Now I'm going to destroy them along with the earth. Make yourself an ark of cypress wood, make rooms in the ark, and cover it inside and out with pitch. For my part, I'm going to bring a flood of waters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark. Keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. That's as heavy for me as it is for you to hear. I, I want to read scripture from beginning to end and find a God of pure, unadulterated love. So I tell myself the same thing I tell you. Is it possible that God's judgment is actually compatible with God's love? We're going to explore that right now. Because I understand right now someone says, this is what I can't stand about the Bible, a God of judgment. You know, if God is God of love, how can God also have any part of judgment? And I'd make the case 
deep down, you actually want a God who judges. Now, the problem is we see how power judges and meets out its judgments, and we get all, all wrong in so many ways. So I, I get that. I'm holding on to that. But here's what I'd say. If you don't have a God who can judge, who can say what is right and what is wrong, then on one hand, you have an incredible intellectual problem. Right? If you can say this world is set up and we are merely a bunch of atoms and leptons and quarks and neurons and all of that, and we're basically a bag of chemicals orbiting around a bright star that one day will just burn out and we'll get roasted into oblivion, then when you go to my garden and you see the stronger vines wrapping themselves around the smaller ones and killing them, when you go to the zoo and you see stronger animals killing the weaker animals, that's just natural selection. That's the way everything runs. So why then do you have any ground to say that a stronger country shouldn't beat up a weaker country? Or a stronger person shouldn't beat up a weaker person? Or a stronger group shouldn't abuse a weaker group? You have an intellectual problem if you don't have some ability to say, oh, the answer is because God has created human beings in God's image and likeness and they all bear God's honor and dignity and are worthy of care. Because God created this world and all that is in it, and it's our job to steward all creation so we actually care for this world in a way that doesn't merely abuse it and use it. You also have an emotional dilemma without a God of judgment. Because when you're wronged, when someone really, really snuffs you, really puts you down, whether they character assassinate you, whether it's physical violence, your hopes are killed, your dreams are dashed, you have been pushed down. When you're wronged, what are you going to do? You're going to get angry. Of course you are. So am I. But if you have a God who is cold, uninterested, and unable to judge and say that is wrong, then it is on you to pick up the sword and make things right. And then an eye for an eye only makes the whole world blind. Miroslav Volf, who was born in Croatia when it was a part of Yugoslavia and then moved to Serbia when it was a part of Yugoslavia, now is a theologian at Yale University, talks about the importance of a God who judges so that we don't have to be the judge, jury, and executioner. Here's what he writes. Imagine speaking to people as I have whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned, and leveled to the ground whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit, you point at them, we should not retaliate? Why not? I say the only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. Violence thrives today, secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword. In other words, you've been wronged, God's doing nothing about it and will do nothing about it, so you need to go and avenge. The downward spiral of violence continues. Miroslav Volf says, it takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, the idea will invariably die, like other pleasant captivities of our minds. In other words, it's on you to be the judge, jury, and executioner unless you know that God can judge rightly. N knowing that God can actually judge allows you and me to forgive. I was really challenged by this 
a few months ago when I knew that a point in the sermon was going to be around forgiveness. And so I was reflecting and meditating on forgiveness, reading on it. And I shared with you all that, you know, if you ever want to be a slave to someone, hold a grudge against them. Because they're not thinking about you. And they're living rent-free in your mind all the time. See, the problem with preaching that is then I have to go live that out as well. And I get mad at people too. And there was someone in our orbit who I feel really did wrong our family with a major financial consequence to it. And every time I just think of proving it somehow or getting back somehow or writing the meanest Yelp review ever or better business bureau, I mean, I've got ideas. And I would call up the jury of 12 in my mind, 12 peers, because they all agree with me because they're all me. And I would convict him again and again and again, and I realize he is not thinking about me. So the best I can do now is I pray for him. God, I pray for your best in his life, and I pray that he gets what he deserves. I don't know how God's going to work that out, but that's the prayer that I could pray. It's a lot better than me slashing his tires. It allows me to let go of the judgment because I trust that God will care for him in ways that are much wiser, more just than the ways that I would. You know what happens? I get set free. A God who sees and a God who judges. Now, can that judgment actually be p- compatible with God's love? And I would say it absolutely is. In fact, the greater love and attachment, care and concern, perhaps the greater anger when it is violated. I love my wife and my kids. If anyone ever did extreme damage or harm or abuse to them, do you know how irate I would be? I would be coming undone. Can you imagine that same scenario? And me going, it's really not that big of a deal. Who am I to judge? You go, do you not love your family? What's wrong with you? In other words, the anger is actually compatible with the love. Now, the difference between me and God and you and God is that in my anger, I will do all sorts of foolish, self-destructive, other destructive things. God deals far more wisely, justly, perfectly than you or I. He created it all. He loves it all. He sees it all. He's pained by it all. And he says, I will do something about it. I will step in to the mess. Put it another way, we can't stand the idea of a God who judges, but we really want someone to clean up all the mess out there. We actually, deep down, want someone, call it God or the divine or whatever, the all spark, whatever you want to call it. We want someone to be able to deal with the brokenness out there, the injustice out there. We want God to judge the evil out there. The problem is that if God does that, God also has to judge the evil in here. Because the line between good and evil doesn't run between countries or governments or continents, or political parties, the line between good and evil runs right through the human heart. And God judges it, and calls it what it is, and exposes it, and does something about it. Now, also there's a really interesting wordplay going on here. I'm not going to nerd out with you for too long. But in Genesis chapter 6, verse 11 to uh, 13, it says, they corrupted themselves, and they were corrupted That's great Hebrew kind of poetry, the parallelism. They corrupted themselves and they were corrupted. That's the Hebrew word for destroy. So then in verse 13, when God says, and so I'm going to destroy them, it's the exact same word. So one way to read that is God is actually saying, I am pained by the brokenness and I'm going to destroy the destruction. I'm going to pull out the whole tooth with the whole cavity because I want this creation to go on. 
God is judging the violence and saving the world. And there's something paradoxically going on here. This comes to our third point, a God who saves. There's something I can't quite wrap my mind around, but somehow in verse uh, 717, God says, The flood continued 40 days on the earth, and the waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters swelled and increased greatly on the earth. The ark floated on the face of the waters. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and all the domestic animals that were with him in the ark, and God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters were subsided. So there's this pattern of salvation through judgment, where Noah is told to build the ark. Everyone laughs at him. He builds it, puts the family on, puts the animals in, and the thing starts floating. And there's this image, remember, it's speaking in imagery of the waters of judgment and chaos coming. So if you look at the waters of judgment and chaos as the flood and the ark as the means of salvation, imagine this ark floating on a stark and stormy night and it's been raining for all this time. On one hand, the ark is saving them from the waters of judgment and death. At the same time, the ark is saving them because of the water, because it's floating on top of it. You begin to have this archetype. If you can go with me, and I hope we can unpack this more later, but it blows my mind to think there's an archetype right there in the flood, the judgment and the grace, that will prefigure later on Jesus on another instrument of wood on the cross, saving us from death by his death. We'll get to that in just a second. A God who saves. There's this promise in chapter 9, verse 13 and 16. God says, see, I will set my bow in the clouds. One of the big messages that comes from this Genesis passage is God is a God who will never wipe out the entire human race. There were plenty of ancient Near Eastern stories that would say God will take you out like that. And God is saying, I promise I will never do that. How will you know? Here's how you'll know. I've set my bow in the clouds, and we go, oh, a rainbow, I get it. See, we're so removed from, you know, from the ancient ways of violence with bows and arrows. Yes and no. That word bow is used 75 times in the Old Testament, and it is always used as an instrument of war. So hold that for a second. If you have this image of God as a warrior, God who can bring judgment, and God says, here's how you're going to know that I will never take you out. I will set my bow in the clouds. Think of that as a bow and arrow. If it's laying like that, if arrows were shot, where would they end up? In the heavens. The symbolic dwelling of the divine. In other words, God is saying, I have judged the earth now. I have destroyed the destruction. But next time, in order to heal the world, you will not take the arrows. I will. And years and years later, Jesus Christ on the cross will be there saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Taking all the arrows, all the injustice, all the brokenness, all the destruction, all of it, and drinking it down to the very bottom, saying, do your worst. And letting the pain and evil and suffering of this world crash upon him like a tsunami. And three days later in his resurrection, he will show that he has conquered death. The last word on this life is not darkness but light. This world is not a candle that simply gets dimmer and dimmer and dimmer until it extinguishes in a small poof of smoke, but rather, he's bringing new life even out of death. So, what's the invitation? 
on one hand, there's a new hope. Then when it feels like in your life, the waters are rising. I had a friend who put on Twitter last week, he's a therapist, pretty well-known author, and he writes, my hunch is that far more people are overwhelmed right now than they're letting on. And he got 5,000 likes within an hour. I mean, I've got all the sorts of theses on why I think that's the case and theories. I think on one hand, we're just COVID fatigued. At the same time, our calendars are filling up. So we both aren't used to filling up our calendars like that. We're overwhelmed there. And there's that low-lying hum of, should I even be filling my calendar up? What am I doing? I mean, there's all sorts of stuff, let alone, you know, the financial and the political stuff and all of that that's going on. It feels like the water's rising in your life. And he says, I'm with you. I will see you through this. I promise I'll never leave you or forsake you. It also means that to be a Christian means you are someone now who is given the responsibility to see the pain in this world. A Christian is someone who doesn't just look out for themselves, but actually sees, notices, cares, and is pained by the pain of others around you. It's what it means to be a person who is born into privilege, to say, Instead of, it's not my problem, to say, I'm really, I need to hear some stories here. I need to meet some people that are unlike me and learn what's actually going on with my neighbors so I can learn from them, so I can walk with them. A person who sees, a person who cares, a person who will do whatever you can in your power to make things right in your particular sphere of influence. That's what I love about being a part of this church with you is that there are some organized ways that we care for our neighbors, but it's really all about the thousands of organic ways that we care for our city and for our world. You will have the opportunity by tomorrow to meet, influence, care for, and bless someone that would never even want to meet me. Because of your particular gift mix and education and socioeconomic level and friends and culture and language, because of who you are, you have access to be an agent of God's renewal in ways other people in this room just don't have the ability. Become a person who sees, a person of hope, a person who moves toward the pain. And as we do, we are actually renewed, let alone the world. This is our invitation. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we do pray now as we come to this, again, I'll say it, terrifying, troubling passage but also a passage as we remove the layers and peer deeply into it, it's filled with hope. Hope of a God who sees our pain and brokenness, who judges it because you call what's right and what's wrong and you say, I want to make this, I want to put this world to rights and a God who's deeply committed to doing just that. So give us hope now. Make us a people who move toward the pain points of others. Even as we ask you to renew us and our neighbors and our city in our world. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.